I, I want to begin on a new series uh, that I'm starting this weekend on the apocalypse, which is the unveiling. And when you are dealing with the subject of the second coming of Christ, you've got to understand that it's a very wide and broad subject. There are many angles I can approach this. But I want to look at four different uh, areas over the next four weekends when I'm preaching. And I still, I still think we're barely scratching the surface of this subject. But it gives you a bit of a gist of what the last days is going to be and maybe whet your appetite a bit for more. Uh, first of all, I want to be looking at an overview of the last days. And when you're looking at an overview, you're looking at the time timelines, you're looking at sequence of events. Right? Now, when you look at the book of Revelation, you will understand that the events are going to happen in chronological order, one after another. And let me just say there are no 10 versions of how Jesus Christ is coming back. There's only one version, the Bible version. Amen. Secondly, we're going to look at the church in the future. And when we're looking at the church in the future, you've got to look at the immediate future, the intermediate future, and the ultimate future. When you look at the immediate future in the next 10 years, what is going to happen in the world and in the church? And you need to know, amen? I'll just tell you exactly what's going to happen by the end of this year. You will still be wearing your mask. <laughs> and, uh, and then the... In <laughs> that was not prophetic. In the intermediate future, we're going to look at the events of things that are going to definitely happen. Uh, some things that will happen and then we're going to see, of course, the rise of the Antichrist and we're going to come to the end of the age. And then, of course, we're going to look at the ultimate future, which is the church in the millennium and also uh, the new heavens and the new earth. I have a big controversy about some people. There's a lot of new people in the church today in Singapore that believe that the church is totally irrelevant. There's no need to come to church any longer. And I don't know, these people need to just get their heads examined, all right? I believe that Jesus Christ is coming back for a bride without spot and wrinkle. Amen. The church is his first love. It's the apple of his eye. I have a wife. I'm very protective of my wife. If you say something derogatory to my wife in front of me, I will say something to you. All right? And I think all husbands should protect their wives that way. Yes? Yes? And if you say something derogatory about his church to the bridegroom, which is our Savior, you get into his bad books. Let me just say this. He's very personal about his wife. Amen. Which is the church. All right, and then, of course, we're looking at the ultimate future. And then when we also want to talk about the person of the Antichrist. And <clears throat> when you're looking at the Antichrist, um, you will discover that there's so much in the Bible about this man. It's as though the father is saying, look, I don't want you to miss who he is when he appears. I don't want my children to be mistaken about his identity, right? Now, he is coming. Uh, he will appear soon. The, the Bible calls him, uh, John calls him the Antichrist. Only the Apostle John calls him the Antichrist. Paul calls him the man of sin, the son of perdition. Uh, Daniel the prophet calls him the little horn. And the book of Revelation calls him the beast with the seven heads and ten horns. All right? uh, but all the same person and he will come and there will be a mark called the mark of the beast. His number is 666. And this is an economic mark. Without this mark on your forehead, you can't buy or sell so you can breathe easy, it's not the vaccine, amen. Don't believe all these conspiracy theories about the vaccine, right? Finally, uh, the need about our personal preparation because uh, you can know everything there is to know about the last days and still not be prepared for it, all right? So we have to be prepared to be forewarned as to be forearmed. Now, there are three principal books when you're looking at the last days, right? The first is the book of Revelation, obviously, 
we must have a grasp of this book. And then, of course, we have the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. It's the expose of uh, the last days from the Old Testament perspective. And then we have the 24th chapter of the book of Matthew. And, of course, this is called the spine of biblical prophecy. If you want to understand the last days, I, I, I recommend you start in Matthew 24 because the prophet himself, the Lord Jesus, is giving us an idea of what the last days is. And by the way, Matthew 24 was only taught to four people, uh, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. It wasn't spoken to the multitude. It was only shared with four people who asked him the question, when will the end be and when will the, what is the sign of your coming? And so it's, uh, the, the whole subject of the last days, it's, it's very pertinent to the church. It's not given for the people outside the church. It's not given for the people who are not interested to hear what Jesus has to say about the church. Amen. Uh, now, let me just talk about a few moments about the book of Revelation. It might surprise you that the Protestant reformers uh, were, had a very extremely poor view of the book of Revelation. And I'm just going to dive into a bit of theology today, all right? And I, I, I believe the church must be rooted, uh, our doctrinal beliefs must be rooted in sound theology or else we'll go wonky, right? And the problem with theology is a lot of the young people in this generation have completely dismissed theology. And that's why there's so much shallowness in the church because we refuse to understand the concepts of the Word of God and we refuse to go deep into the Word of God and I refuse to let that happen in Cornerstone. And that's why when I preach, I try to have milk and meat, amen? The milk is for the young Christians, but the meat is for us. We must have meat to mature, amen? And the church in, in, in Cornerstone must be a maturing church, amen? You must be growing in your understanding, your concepts of God, amen? And so I want to dive a bit into theology because theology helps us root uh, ourselves in sound doctrine, amen? Now, the fathers of the Reformation had a very poor view of the uh, book of Revelation, and I, I don't understand that, all right? Martin Luther described the book of Revelations as being neither apostolic or prophetic, and he once said, and I quote, Everything's, everyone thinks of the book whatever his spirit suggests. And he said there were many nobler books than the book of Revelation. I'm sorry. John Calvin, who is, of course, the father of Reformed theology, completely omitted this book in his New Testament commentary. Zwingli, who is another father of the Reformation, said this testimony could be rejected because it's not a book of the Bible. Hey, these guys are the fathers of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. And they had such a bad view of, of the, of, of the uh, book of Revelation. And many of the denominations today have come out of the Reformation. Uh, and I want to say that there are two churches in two generations that have that have uh, influenced our theology, and that's the first century church, that's the Acts of the Apostles in the Bible, and also the 15th century church, that's the Reformation church. And out of these two churches have come the doctrines that have shaped the 21st century church, all right? We derive most of our doctrine. And I want to espouse today a return to the first century church, which is the Bible, hallelujah, amen. A return to the first century church because the reason we're so messed up theology is because we've drawn most of our doctrines from the 15th century church instead of the first century church. I'll give you two examples of this. For instance, in the, if you are in the first century church, if you are sick, what do you do? Come on, what do you do? You call for the elders of the church, they will come, they will pray for you, and the prayer of faith will heal the sick. That's what they did in the early church. But in the 15th century church, if you were sick, what did they do? Well, God has a greater plan for your sickness. It's the sovereignty of God, and He wants you to enjoy, uh, embrace your sickness as part of the plan of God. And you know, I'm telling you, if God wants us to learn suffering, He doesn't have to have, make us sick. doesn't have to make us sick. So we've departed from the Bible and given a very clever 
concept called the sovereignty of God to try and prove why we don't need healing in the church today. Another example is in the first century church, they believed that you can lose your salvation through persistent sin, rebellion, and a lack of repentance. In the 15th century church, they thought the whole idea of once saved, always saved was birth, and of course, that is, that is not in the Bible, all right? The whole idea that the day of miracles, or what we call cessationism, came out from the 15th century church. The early church, in the book of Acts, man, come on, it's every page is infused with the supernatural. It's infused with the signs and wonders, amen? And that the whole idea of the Jewish people are a scourge to humanity, that they're a pest that needs to be exterminated, comes out from the 15th century church, from Martin Luther and all that, those guys. And I'll tell you this, there's so much bad doctrine that have come out from the 15th century. There's some good that has come out, of course, uh, of, you know, but there's so many bad doctrines that have come out. And we in Cornerstone cannot be built on 15th century theology. We have to go back to the Bible as the foundation stone of our theology. Amen. And I really believe that's important. Because if there's any book in the Bible that Satan hates, it's the book of Revelation. In fact, he hates the first few chapters of the book of Genesis and the last few chapters of the book of Revelations. Because in the first few books of, of, of the first few chapters of Genesis, it tells us how he got a hold of this world. The last few chapters of Revelation tells us how he lost it. And if he can convince you that Genesis is a myth and Revelations is a mystery, he's won the battle. All right, so he hates the, the book of Revelation. In fact, the book of Revelation in chapter 1 opens up with the revelation of... It's the revelation of Jesus given by the Father. The Father is revealing to His Son. He's opening the curtains and showing His, his Son what is going to happen in the last days. And the, Jesus is, is uh, revealing it to His servant John, who is the scribe. John is not the author. He's just a scribe. And you know, about 15 times, 12 times, I think, in the book of Revelation, the angel of the Lord turns to John and says, make sure, write this down, write this down, because he was so awed with jaw-gaping uh, uh, wonderment at what was happening that the angel had to remind him, hey, make sure you record this down, because this is for the next generation. Amen. And, uh, and uh, so he was just a scribe, but Jesus is the author. All right. And in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3 says, blessed those who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep the things which are written in it for the time is near. Did you know that Revelations is the only book in the Bible that commands a blessing to those who read it, keep it and hear it. Amen. It's also the only book in the Bible that, that, that speaks of a curse to those who tamper with it or twist the words of the prophecy. And I thank God for the book of Revelation. Without it, man, we will be all shaking in our, our, our boots, man. You know, with all that's happening in the last days with, uh, in the world, the sin that is accelerating, the darkness that's accelerating, without the book of Revelation, we'll all be shaking. But because of the book, we know with the last few chapters, we win. Hallelujah. Amen. Jesus triumphs. Amen. Of course He triumphs. In fact, there is no contest. When Jesus returns to this earth physically, the armies of the Antichrist will be set in array to fight Him, right? And we all think, man, that's the greatest conflict of all time. You know, that's the mother of all battles. But I tell you this, when he opens his mouth, a sharp sword comes and completely decimates the enemies of the Antichrist in just one fell scoop. I'm telling you this, there is no contest. Amen. He is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen. And you got to know this, man. You got to know this, okay? And um, <clears throat> just one more thing I want to say, that the, the last book of the Bible, just before the book of Revelations, is the epistle of what? Jude. And Jude was written by, uh, uh, by the Apostle Jude, obviously, was a brother of Jesus. He wrote it to a second-generation church that was already falling into apostasy. Can you imagine if that's the last book of the Bible? It would be a depressing anticlimax, man. 
But I'm so glad that the book, uh, the Bible ends with the book of Revelations. It's a glorious finale. Come on, hallelujah, amen. Come on, 10, 15 service. I thought you were the most. <laughs> okay. Uh, three concepts I like to talk about briefly today, all right? I want to jump right into this. First is the concept of uh, the elect, right? The second is the concept of divine delay. And the third is the concept of the bride. Let me just talk about the elect for a few moments, all right? The elect is a term that's used by Jesus in reference to the last days, right? When he was referring to his people, he often used the, the, the phrase, the church, or ecclesia, right? The, the call-out ones, right? Uh, Paul uses the, the phrase, the body of Christ. He uses the term, the family of God. Sometimes he talks about the army, right? Those are common terms that's used to describe us, right? But the word elect is the only time that Jesus used to describe us, but it's reference to the last days, right? Uh, it's very important. Paul uses the term in expl explaining, explaining the predestination and foreknowledge and election. Now, when you talk about the election, you have to deal with something called unconditional election, which is a doctrine that came out from the 15th century church. Unconditional election gives us the idea that God predestined us, some for salvation, some for eternal damnation, by His own will and by His own choice, and nothing has to do with our own free will and decisions that we make. So, God decides, you are going to go to heaven, you are going to go to hell, you are going to go to heaven, you are going to go to hell. I decide, and that's it, and nothing to do with our free will. That's called conditional elections, and I'll just tell you this, I've walked long enough with God to know that that cannot be true. If you believe that, then you believe in F-A-T-E, faith, right? We don't believe in fate. But what we believe is we believe in conditional election, and conditional election that came out of Arminianism, which is, um, which is the opposite of uh, uh, the counter view of conditional election, which means it's the idea that God chooses for eternal salvation those whom He foreknew, and that's the key word, foreknowledge, who would exercise their free will to respond to God's prevenient grace. And uh, if, you, if you want to study something, go back and Google this word, prevenient grace. Prevenient grace is the grace that was working in your life before you became a Christian. It was God preparing your heart to receive salvation. Best example in the Bible, the Apostle Paul. He's on the way to Damascus and a blinding light comes from heaven. Jesus appears to him in a vision. Paul doesn't know who Jesus is and says, Who are you, Lord? I love that, right? He says, I don't know who you are, but whoever you are, you are Lord. <laughs> and Jesus said, Paul, I'm Peter, whom you are persecuting. And then he said, it is very hard for you to kick against the goats, which is a, a you know, it's a, it's a stick with a large sharp edge that you use to prod the cattle. In other words, what God was saying to Paul is, Paul, I've been speaking to you, man. I've been speaking, the conviction you feel, that's from me. I've been working in your heart, but you keep on resisting my grace. Keep on it's hard for you to resist my grace, amen. That's prevenient grace. Now, when I got saved in, 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 in 1974, uh, it was the first time I heard the gospel. First time it was preached to me. And when I heard it for the first time, I believed it. I said, this is exactly what I want. But it was the preparation of my heart that brought me to that place. Because when I was a young, uh, young um, teenager, I, my mother got saved. And when my mother got saved, she became the kindest person I, I, I knew. She became a gracious and uh, kind and very noble and wonderful mom. And, I, and, and my other relatives got saved and all their natures changed. And I witnessed this and I said to myself in my heart, I said, if this is what the gospel, if this is what Jesus Christ can do for people, whatever they got, I want. Hallelujah. 
So when the gospel was presented to me, I said, that's exactly what I want. I know what I want. I, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Yes, I do. Bam, I get saved, all right? But the prevenient grace was working in my heart long before my salvation. Do you identify with this? This is really important, all right? And uh, of course, you know, uh, the father of Calvinism or, or, or Reformed theology, which is what we... Uh, you know, there's some good things about it. One of my past, one of my brothers, uh, Tim, reminded me, Pastor Young, we're all on the same side. I know we're on the same side. Right? We're on the same team. But there are things we, we have to stand up for and fight for. Amen. And this is one of the things. We have to go back to first century Christianity. And of course, John Kelvin, the father of Reformed theology, had this idea of unconditional election that's basically based on TULIP, right? The acronym TULIP. Again, it's good for you to Google the stuff and, and read up because it will help you understand our faith even better. And this whole idea of TULIP, right? T is, of course, total depravity. That's the state of man before salvation. Uh, T, uh, U is unconditional election. I talked about this. L, limited atonement. And so the, the reformist believes that Jesus only died for a few people. He didn't die for the whole world. I, I tell you. I'm sorry, I can't, I can't accept that, right? And then I is, I is uh, irresistible grace, right? That when God shows grace to a person to be saved, that person will be saved anyway, right? And again, I, you know, everybody has to make a choice. When you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, I'm telling you this, God will never allow a situation. Now listen to me. He will never allow a situation where he's accused. When somebody's standing before the judge, he cannot allow a situation where a person says to him, you're not a fair God, you're not a just God, because if you gave me the chance for salvation, I would have received Jesus, but you never gave me a chance for salvation, and now I'm going to be damned to hell because I never had a chance to choose. You're not a just God, and God will never put himself in a position where he would be accused of being unjust and unfair. It's something that you've got to understand, man. I, it's so important with God that, he, that everybody will be judged based on the choices you make, all right? By the choices you make, you will either be rewarded or you will be condemned, all right? So it's, it's, that's why we must preach the gospel, amen? If you believe in uh, Calvinism, man, you, why, why preach the gospel, man? If my, if my brother is going to get saved one day, he's going to get saved. I don't have to do anything to, do it, to, to help the process. But we know that's not true. Jesus said, preach the gospel, amen? All right, um, um, let, me, let me just uh, now, if you're going to deal with predestination, you've got to deal with that scripture in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For whom he foreknew, the Bible says, he also predestined. That's the key. The foreknowledge of God allows him to predestine us to be conformed to the image of his son that, we might be the the, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. All right? And I talked about prevenient grace. God knew how we were going to respond. But I bring you all of that to bring you to verse 28, which I think is one of the most important verses in this study, right? It says, For we all know that all things work together for good for them that love God and those who are called according to His purpose. I think this is one of the most important verses in our, in our, in our generation. The word purpose in Greek is the word, it's got a dual meaning. Now, I'm not a, I'm not a student of Greek, right? I remember my spiritual father many, many years ago, Brother Bailey, he asked the Lord, he wanted to learn Greek. And he said to the Lord, Lord, should I learn Greek? And the Lord says, Brian, it's not Greek, it's grace. Amen. And so I, I decided I don't need to learn Greek. But I think that's important, right? So I, I got this from a Greek scholar, somebody who knows Greek, and that's, of course, Dutch Sheets. And I wrote to Dutch yesterday. I said, Dutch, I want your permission to share your explanation of these two words. And he said, man, it would be an honor to, for you to share in the church. Amen. Uh, the first word for the word purpose is the word prothesis. 
Pro means pre, it means to prepare beforehand. Thesis, of course, you know, it's a dissertation of the why, the what, the how of something, right? But you, when you add those two words together, it gives you the idea, simply means that God has worked out the narrative for your life long before you were even born, and all of that is predicated on foreknowledge. He knew the choices you were going to make in life, okay? And because He knew that He could foreordain, He could preordain you uh, uh, to be conformed to the image of His Son. One more scripture and then I'll explain this. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 says it this way. He says, for we are all his workmanship, right? Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should, or God ordained beforehand that we should walk in them. The word for workmanship is the word poema, where we get the word poem. Uh, God's writing a poem. Whenever he, whenever he thinks about us, he's thinking of a song that comes out. But also it gives you the picture of a, a person of uh, the process of weaving a garment. So God's, uh, in this whole idea of, of poema, God is weaving a garment where He can put on, all right? He's weaving us into a garment where He can put on. But the word, the phrase prepared beforehand is the word ordained in the King James Bible. And you can check this up. It's all in the notes. It's going to be available in the, in, in, uh, online so you can just download it, all right? And it, it's a word in Greek I cannot pronounce. It means to tailor make a garment, to tailor made a garment. Now, I'm wearing a Marks and Spencer shirt, all right? My size is 15 and three quarter. The shirts only come in 15 and a half or 16. The only reason I buy Marks and Spencer shirt is because they have two inches shorter, all right? All the European shirts and American shirts are way too long, way too big for us. It's too long and the sleeves are always too long, right? Marks and Spencer is the only company that has two inch shorter sleeves, right? But I'm a 15 and 3 quarters, so when I buy a 15 and a half, it is a little tight, especially on the waist, okay? If I buy a 16 size shirt, it's a little big on the shoulder and a little big here, right? But I have no choice, it's off rack, so I buy a shirt off rack and it fits. I put on a jacket so you don't see all the creases and things like that, right? But my size is 15 and 3 quarter. Now, if I go to a tailor, he will make a tailor make shirt and it will be perfect. Just the right size, just the, you understand? And that's what the word ordain means. It means God tailor made something for you. Now, he had calls, he has called me to be a pastor. So he tailor makes my personality and my, tri my temperament to fit my calling. Do you understand? For instance, I like people. I like hanging out with people. The next week, from Monday, Tuesday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I've got lunches all set up for, for different people that I'm meeting over the week. And if you want to buy me lunch, I'm free, all right? Just call me. <laughs> you pay, all right? <laughs> because that's my temperament. I like meeting people. I like sitting down with them. I like hearing their stories. Tell me how you got saved. How, tell me what you like in life. What are the books that impacted you? I want to know. I like to know about you and I want to know more about you. And that's the way God made me. Now, if He made you an author, for instance, and you're very introverted, you know, and maybe that's the way God made you. You are very happy and contented over the weekend with just a cup of coffee and a book and, uh, you know, and you don't have to meet people and that's bliss for you, you know, and that's the way God made you. Amen. I was talking about Pastor Dion. You know, Pastor Dion is a very combative nature. He was a soldier when he was in the South... 
South, in South Africa, uh, you know, as a commando, you know, special forces. And, and then he gets saved and he's still, he thinks he's still in the special forces. Right? <laughs> but, but he has that kind of, he has that combative nature. And I'll tell you what, when I'm charging up a hill to fight in a battle and he's on my side, I, I can trust him. Amen. You know you can trust him because he's not going to back away and, and turn around, right? And then you see, I look at all my pastors and they all have different temperaments, you know, and I, I learned because of their calling. Like Pastor Lip, okay, I don't want to say too much about him. <laughs> but you know, when John the Baptist was born, the Bible says the, the, the Lord knew him in his mother's, formed him in his mother's womb. If you're a pioneer, if you're a forerunner, you have to have some kind of a spunk, man. You have to have what we call, the Jewish people call uh, Hutzpah, yeah, hutzpah, and hutzpah. It's, it's that it's you have to have that personality for people who are forerunners. Amen. They they are a bit different, and so you know God knows exactly what your call is, and He creates a temperament just so that it's tailor made for you. But there's a second uh, purpose, a second meaning that comes from the word purpose, and it's the word prosthesis. The first is prosthesis, the second is prosthesis, and you know what a prosthetic is? It's an artificial limb, right? If somebody loses his arm, his legs, and you put a prosthetic, right? And so what it means, listen very carefully because it's so beautiful. What it means is that God pre-planned your life long before you were born. And even if you made mistakes in your life, He has already pro provided the provision for restored purpose. <laughs> you were not a mistake. Your parents might not have planned for you. God did. Amen. And I don't care if you made, if you've failed in a marriage before, God had, has, has pre-planned that into His purpose for you. He knew you were going to fail. It's not His fault, but He knew you were going to fail. Pastor, I've been abused as a child. God knew that it was going to happen, but He pre-planned that, and it's the restored purpose to bring you back to your original call. It's all in, included in the word purpose. Amen. There's a, there's a gentleman in the history of the church that I just want to mention. His name is John Newton. John Newton was a slave trader. And he's, of course, a slave trader is the most despicable form of human existence. Right? They prey on human weaknesses, okay? So he's a slave trader, and then he gets saved, and he writes the song that has been sung more in the Christian church than any other song in history, Amazing Grace, okay? So we see a slave trader. We think it's a despicable man, God looks at him and says, I hear a song. Yeah? So he gets saved, writes the most famous song in history in the, in the church. But not only that, I only found out this week that John Newton was the pastor of William Wilberforce. And William Wilberforce was the man that God raised up in the House of Commons in England to overturn the laws of slavery. <laughs> that is purpose, amen? That is purpose. That is redeemed. Restored purpose, amen. And God can do that for you, my friends. You made a mistake in life. Trust me, God has already factored. When God called me into the ministry 30 years ago, He already factored into the equation my stupidity. All right, second concept is the concept of divine delay. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, very important word. God is not slack concerning His promises towards us, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering that, that, and not willing that any should perish. When you read the narrative of the last days, you will come to a very clear conclusion that there is a delay in the second coming of Jesus Christ. God is somehow delaying it. And Peter tells us why. 
It's because God is not willing that any should perish, right? This is one of the overarching principles in the Bible. It's that as many as possible should be saved. Amen. In the parable of the wise and foolish virgins, they were all asleep before the bridegroom came. Remember? And then suddenly there's this cry, the midnight cry, wake up for the bridegroom is here. Now the whole parable is a parable of preparedness. And it says that when the bridegroom was delayed, when he tarried, in other words, he was delayed in coming back. All of us fell asleep. I'm telling you this, my friends, you've you got to be careful. There's only one group of Christians that were not sleeping. The midnight callers. They were the ones that said, the master, the bridegroom is here. Now, these people in this story, they're not the bride. They're the virgins. They attend, they, if I could say this, they tend to the bride. And I'll talk about this in a few moments a bit more, right? Um, and then in the, par- in the story in Matthew 24, when Jesus is talking about the last days, he talked about a wicked servant who said in his heart, my master is delayed from returning and starts to mistreat people and starts to mistreat his, 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 the, you know, the rest of the servants and starts to eat and drink. Now, let me just put it this, and I know that I might offend some people here, but I don't care. I just want you to know, you be careful about social drinking, right? Because too many people are socially drinking today and they are they just they are at the borderline between tipsy and being drunk many times. I've seen Christians drinking and drinking and drinking, and they always, Pastor Young, I know how to control myself. Really? And they always, they, 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 they totter between this, this being tipsy and, and being drunk. I'm telling you this, I warn you with a strong warning. Stay away from alcohol, especially in the last days. Jesus is coming back for a bride that's sober. Stay away from alcohol. I'm, if you, don't, you know, every meal, everybody has to drink, man. And man, they finish a bottle, two bottles. I'm thinking to myself, you should wake up, you know. I'm, again, I'm not against drinking. I'm sure you can drink. I never said you can't drink. But I'm just saying, be very careful. I, when it comes to alcohol, let me just say this, right? Abstinence is preferred to moderation, okay? Let me just uh, add that word of advice. Uh, and then, um, you know, my spiritual father used to tell me this, Brother Bailey. He said, tell you, and always remember, there are people going to heaven, there are people going to hell. And you've got to prepare them for both, Okay? Uh, again, in the parable, and you know, this, this evil man, this evil servant says in his heart, my master is delayed. How do you know? How in the world did he know the master was delayed? How did he know? I'll tell you how he knew. He looked in the Bible and calculated and said, man, Jesus is going to come back at, uh, on, on 2021 on February, all right? Just say, all right? I calculate, I do all and you know, that's an evil thing in the eyes of God because Jesus said, no one knows the day that the, the Lord will come. Even, not even the Son of Man. Only the Father knows it, right? We're not permitted by Scripture to calculate the, the, the time of His day. And everybody who has done that has fallen into great error. Everybody, all right? We're not allowed to do that. Why? Because there's something about the divine delay process that causes us to long for Him, causes us to wait in anticipation. What are you doing as the Lord delays is going to be your determining factor where you stand before God for eternity. How you respond to this delay? Are you saying, Lord, I, I know you're delayed, but I'm longing for you to come back. I'm, my heart's yearning for you. I'm burning for you, Lord Jesus. I long to see you, amen. I, I long to, to meet with you, Lord Jesus. And you're preparing your heart to meet the Lord Jesus. And that's really what uh, the response should be in terms of delay. And finally, I know because of time, let me just uh, say, uh, you know, delays, by the way, is often sent to test us, right? You, it can either define you, it can either destroy you, or it can make you stronger. Now, 
the concept, uh, finally, the concept of the bride. What is the one picture we get of the second coming? A wedding, right? Jesus is coming back for a bride without spot or without wrinkle. And I want to read one scripture verse to you and then I will land the plane here. Revelation 19, verse 7 to 9, Let us be glad and rejoice and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His wife has made herself ready. So the bride has now become the wife because there has been consummation. Okay? Spiritually. And to her it was granted to be arrayed fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And he said to me, Write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. In a typical Jewish wedding, you've got different groups of people. You've got the bridegroom, you've got the bride, you've got the friends of the bridegroom, right? You've got the companions of the bride, or the bridal party in Singapore, we understand this. And then you've got the wedding guests. In verse 9, uh, chapter 19 of verse 9, and verse 9, it says, this is one of the blessed statements in the Bible, right, of Revelation. Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. These people are not the bride. They're the wedding guests. But it's a blessed thing to be invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. It is, it's a blessed thing, right? Song of Song tells us, a, gives us a beautiful picture of the bride. The bride is why Jesus is returning. There is a company of people on this planet today that are, are, are part of the formation of a, of a remnant called the Bride of Christ. And they're the most beautiful, most unique people in the world. They're pure, they're holy, and they have only one eye. And that's for their Savior, Jesus Christ, for their husband. They only have one eye. They're not distracted by TV. They're not distracted by entertainment. They're not distracted by the things of the world. They're not distracted by... Amazon.com. <laughs> they have only one heart, one devotion, and that's Jesus Christ. And in the course of the last 30 years, I have been privileged to meet some people that when I meet them, the Holy Spirit bears witness and says, this one is part of my bride, or being prepared to be my bride. Very unique people. Not the whole church. In fact, it's only going to be a small company of people from the redeem of the last 6,000 years of humanity that will be part of the bride. John the Baptist is not in the bride, by the way. He's a friend of the bridegroom. He himself testified. He says, when the, when the, when the friend of the bridegroom sees the bridegroom, he rejoices. Hallelujah. Amen. So you've got to know whether you are in the bride, the company of the bride, whether you're in the company of the, you are the friend of the bridegroom, whether you're the virgins that accompany the bride wherever she goes, or whether you're just part of the marriage, the wedding guests. Now, if you're a part of the wedding guests, that's a privilege, by the way, right? It's like, um, it's like Harry and Meghan getting married, and, uh, and then you get, no, no, I don't, I don't want to go to the wedding anyway. <laughs> it's like uh, somebody, you know, you get invited, you get that golden envelope, and you open, you're invited to the wedding of... What's the other son's name? William. William, William and Kate, right? Ah, that one I don't mind going. <laughs> so, I close with this story. I don't know if you ever read the book, uh, The Visions of William Booth. You can get them at FaithWorks. But William Booth is the founder of Salvation Army and one of the greatest men who I believe ever lived. William Booth had a vision when he was a young man. And in this vision, he was caught up to heaven and he said, I saw a procession of people in the skies, in the clouds of heaven as well. 
And he says, they were adored by all the inhabitants of heaven. He said, all the angels and all the redeemed of the Lord looked up and they saw this procession of the most beautiful company of people with the greatest joy and purity on their faces. They were virgins, hallelujah. They were, there's only one desire they have and that's the Lamb of God. And they were, they were being paraded before uh, all of heaven. And the procession stopped right in front of William Booth in the vision. And Jesus is right in the company of this beautiful group of people. He said, I never saw joy like I saw joy on their faces. They were full of joy. And Jesus, in the vision, turns to William Booth and he looks at, directly at William Booth and says, William, how will you ever know that joy if you have never known how much they have suffered for me? <laughs> it gets me all the time. Every time I hear that, every time I'm reminded of that, I'm just, my heart just melts. There is a company of people that have suffered for Jesus and have loved him to the very end. Hallelujah. And I tell you this, when we get to heaven, we are going to adore the bride because they are worthy. We live in Singapore. You know, Singapore is a very pampered society. All the convenience, all the comfort that we have here in Singapore, we have no idea what the rest of the 95% of the world is going through, man. We have no idea. We live in a very protected society, and you know, everything is very hunky-dory here in Singapore, you know. And I, I, I think, uh, you know, we, we fail to understand what some of the Christians in India are going through, what some of the Christians in Sudan are going through, are being, their heads are being lopped off, you know, and uh, the sufferings they have to go through for the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they love Jesus to the end. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I think that we, we need to here in Singapore to be so cognizant of the fact that we have it so good and that there is a demand that's placed on the church in Singapore because to whom much is given, much is required. There is a responsibility we have. And I just want to suggest to you, some of you need to just get out of your jobs and go and do what God has put in your heart to do. You're so comfortable. You have enough money for the rest of your life, man. You have enough money in your bank to last you for two lifetimes, okay? Some of, you know, I, I, <laughs> I heard a man once said, you know, I, when the recession hit, right? He said, my family had the wealth of seven generations. And then the recession came. And then he said, now we have a debt ten generations cannot repay. God can remove all these things pretty quickly, amen. So I want to just say that I believe God's giving us the opportunity uh, to, 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 to draw near. And I know I've passed my time, so let's all stand up. I want to close right now. I feel it's important for us, for God to birth in us this desire, a longing for Jesus, amen. You know, to have a single eye for Him only, amen. And to say, Jesus, I just want to live for you. I just want to please you with all my heart. And I, I just want to be prepared for your coming. The Bible closes with this beautiful phrase in Aramaic, right? It's a, it's a phrase that our previous prime minister, <laughs> oh my goodness, so funny. He used to recite this in his uh, devotions, in his uh, meditation. He was not a believer, but he was told to do that. And he used to recite this word, Maranatha, 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 which means come quickly, Lord. Come quickly, Lord. Lord Jesus, come quickly. And I pray that God would birth this, this phrase into your spirit. That you would birth a cry in your hearts and say, God, I want to be prepared for your coming. I want to be ready for your coming, Lord. I made mistakes in my life, but I thank you that you, that prosthesis, Lord, you have already restored the purposes, Lord. You can restore me back to my original purpose. You can realign me back to the original calling, Lord. I, I, I can continue in fervency and in faith, 
knowing God that, that you have made provisions for my weaknesses as well. But we don't want to live there. You know what I mean? We don't want to live in our weaknesses. We want to grow strong in the Lord and we want to become holy and we want to be righteous. So Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus, I speak a blessing over this community of people. I pray that this message will in some way stir their hearts to seek you more, Lord, to love you more, to, to spend more time with you, God, to study the Word of God and to see what needs to be done for them to be part of the greatest company of people on this planet. Lord, there are many outer court Christians. The outer court is very large and the majority of the church will be in the outer courts. Then there is a holy place and only the servants of the Lord are allowed into that holy place. And I believe it's a picture of heaven. And then there is the holy of holies where the bride is, hallelujah. The beautiful one, the dove, the apple of your eye, the desire of nations, Lord. The one that you came to die for, Lord. You came to die for the, for the nations of the world. You came to die for every human being. But Lord, you're coming back for a very special group of people. The bride, the love of your life. God, I pray in Jesus' name that you'll do something in our hearts this morning. God, do something in our hearts to long for greater intimacy with you for greater intimacy. Again, I just feel strongly the Lord is saying that some of you are saying right now, but I made so many mistakes. I failed. And that's why purpose is so important in your life. God not only had a plan for you, but effected in your failures as well. Come back to the purposes of God in your life. And the blessings of God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. And everybody said, Amen. Let's give God a big praise. Amen. just listen to a production of Cornerstone Community Church. Please note that all unauthorized reproduction, distribution, or sale of the recording is prohibited. For permission to reproduce or distribute the sermon, please write into mail at cscc.org.sg. We hope that you have been blessed.